Well, last week we looked at how God is God over the ordinariness of our lives. Today we look at how God is God over even the happenstance, the, the luck, accidental things of our lives. It is a doctrine that is very well established and very well uh, studied by Christians throughout the ages. It is called the providence of God. And when Christians speak of the providence of God, they are speaking of those things that God does in his sovereign will and power that do not fall under the usual, what is usually called the supernatural power of God, the miraculous workings of God. The God of the Bible, the God that we read of in Scripture, Jehovah, that we read of in, in the Old and New Testament, is a God who decrees, who creates, and who sustains. And through his providence, he carries all things and brings them all together to work out his design and to accomplish his perfect will in the world. And this, for us, if you're a Christian, this brings a, a, a great amount of comfort, a great amount of peace in the, in the midst of trouble. Because we look at all the things that happen in our lives, in God's world, and we can be confident and say it is God's good hand bringing all these things about for the good of those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. We might at some times be in awe of the providence of God. Oftentimes if we really uh, consider it as the Puritans used to do from all sides and angles and, and from downwards. and If we consider we are in awe and in shock and it is even bewildering and, 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 and unfathomable to consider the providence of God. But never, ever, if we are Christ's, if we are God's, we do not need to fear the providence of God. We do not need to be to challenge it because it is the most comforting uh, truth. It is the source of all comfort to know that God is sovereign and that he is good. If you know those two things, the world, the devil, the flesh can throw anything at you. And you're still able to say with Spafford, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Let me read to you the definition of God's providence uh, from the, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says like this, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness and mercy. And brothers and sisters, this passage illustrates one verses one, two, and three, illustrates something of this. What do you think when, when we speak about luck? This passage speaks about 
something happening. It's something that is happening by chance. How do we engage with it? How, what is the, the, how do we navigate the tension between an almighty God, a sovereign creator of everything, and seemingly free will choices that we make on our day-to-day lives? How does God bring these things about? That is what we are considering today from verses 1, 2, and 3. But let me just, in case you weren't here last week, catch you up on chapter 1. We've been going through chapter 1 for a few weeks now. Uh, Chapter uh, 1 is the story of Ruth. Uh, uh, Chapter 1 of the book of Ruth, one of the most well-written stories in, in the world. It is a true story that takes place in the time of the judges, a time where... If you would just turn back a few pages, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. That's the days of the judges, perfectly summarized. Everyone did as he was right in his own eyes. Everyone was a ruler for themselves. They did whatever they wanted. And that's the the, the backdrop of spiritual decay, perverse uh, lives that is the book of Ruth. It is to, in this backdrop that we are introduced to Naomi, Elimelech, their two sons, Ruth and Orpah. That's what J- chapter 1 speaks of. S- years before our Lord Jesus, a thousand years perhaps before our Lord Jesus set foot on this world. Here's a story that tells us something of the immense grace and mercy of our Lord. And the story is in a very well-known town. If we know our Lord Jesus, it is in the town of Bethlehem, which is ultimately where Jesus was to be born. It is a, a story of an ordinary family. They're not kings, or they're not, they're, they're not rich people, they're not affluent uh, family. They're a normal family, an average family, headed by an average man called Elimelech. And, and they have a, a, a wife, there is a wife there, Naomi, uh, the name means sweet or pleasant. And they have two children, Malone and Kilion, means sick and dying. And so that's the story here. What happens is that a famine comes into the city of Bethlehem, which is ironic because Bethlehem means the house of bread. And now the house of bread, the city of bread, has no bread. And finally, due to his hard-heartedness and due to his stubbornness, Israel is put under judgment and Elimelech relocates rather foolishly, I believe, his family from Bethlehem to Moab, a city about 50 miles away, a city that is in the, in the, in the land of pagans, a land of where people uh, sacrifice their children to a god uh, called Shemosh, not the god of scripture, not Jehovah. And he makes this tragic error of sending his, uh, bringing his family along for the ride. And what happens while they are there is that first Elimelech dies, and then uh, the two children take wives, Orpah and, and, and Ruth, and, and they too die. So we see three widows, or we see three deaths, and later on we see three widows. Because when Naomi, uh, three widows, uh, making a decision on the road. Because when Naomi hears that God has finally come and visited the people of God in Bethlehem and blessed them with bread, she makes a decision to go back and to take her daughters-in-law with him. Along the way, 
She realizes that she has nothing to offer to them. So she, she actually encourages Orpa and Ruth, I would say rather foolishly again, to stay back. Well, look, stay here. I have nothing to give you. I'm empty. I'm bitter. I can give you nothing. Return home. Don't, don't come with me. Orpa does, does so. And Ruth, in what I believe to be a conversion experience in the Old Testament, refuses to do so. And she commits herself to her mother-in-law and most importantly to the God of her mother-in-law and to her people. And that's that wonderful passage that we know that is so often read in weddings. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from you, from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. Does the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So Ruth stayed, Naomi acquiesced, Ruth stayed with her, they come to Bethlehem, and as they arrive in Bethlehem, the city is abuzz, here's a woman that had left 10 years ago, she left with husbands and children and with money in her pocket, and now she returns a homeless widow, despairing and bitter, and that's what she tells them, do no longer call, no longer call me Naomi, sweet, sweet or, or pleasant in Hebrew, she says to those in the city, call me bitter, call me, call me Mara, because I'm bitter. She was a bitter old woman. And that is the end of chapter one. Emptiness. If you want to take a word away, it is, uh, or to summarize it in a word, you could summarize it as emptiness. We move to chapter two, and if you want to summarize with a word, this chapter is seeking. I've told you that the book of Ruth is, uh, has this, uh, this, road or that has this 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 trajectory it is a, a book that goes from famine to fullness from emptiness to fullness so that's how you could describe the chapter two is it is still not fullness but there is a seeking going on now so we are introduced in verse one let's get get into it in verse one to a relative of naomi's husband a man of great wealth his name was Boaz. The Hebrew text here is uh, kind of unclear, but the story unfolds as if this Boaz figure was uh, what will later be called a, a, go, a kinsman redeemer, a goel, but here it is, he is called just a relative. The word is uh, uh, the Hebrew word mudah, and it is, it is a word that carries something of a close family covenantal bond. The other place where this word is used in, is in Proverbs 7, verse 4, and it should help us to, to understand the meaning here. It says in Proverbs 7, 4, Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. That's, that's the same word, nearest kin. This relative of Naomi's husband is the nearest kin uh, to Naomi to Elimelech. So that's what we see here. Boaz was a near relative, a nearest kin to Elimelech. Boaz was a man, we read in verse 1, a man of great wealth. And here, I know I'm going a lot about translation issues today. I, I do apologize, but at times you, there is no other way of 
understanding and, and, and really uh, getting into the nitty-gritty of what goes on in, the, in these words. It says that he was a man of great wealth. I'm not too happy with how the New King James translate, translates this. The word literally in this that is given here to Boaz literally means a man of valor. A man of wealth, yes, but a man of valor more, a man of strength. And that's, and that's where, what I believe is being mentioned here about Boaz, that he was a man of statute, a stature. He was a man that was well-respected. He was a man that was powerful and important in the society of Bethlehem in those days. He was a man that was worthy of being imitated. He was a man, a gentleman, uh, and he was a, a, the kind of man that other men should look up to. So look at the men that appear for us in this, in this book up until now. You have Elimelech, you have, not something to write home about. You have Malan, you have Kilion, but here is Boaz. The contrast is clear for us to see. And I, I think it is meant for us to see this man is one whose name, Boaz, literally means strength, a mighty one. And we'll come back to Boaz. I don't want to spend much time now with Boaz because towards the end we'll come and consider a little bit more. But just bear in mind that here Boaz is introduced to us. A man of great wealth, I believe a man of valor, that's what's being uh, pointed out to us. Uh, by the way, just in passing, notice how Naomi calls herself a bitter woman. Do not call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara. But the, the narrator has, doesn't want that. She, she asks to be called Mara, and so often in Scripture when there is a name change, the name change carries on in the, uh, by the narrator. But here the narrator is quite clear, no, 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 I'm going to carry on calling her Naomi. Because by the end of the story, you will realize that her bitterness was completely uncalled for. So verse 2, there's Boaz, and in verse 2 we are introduced to, or we are again brought to consider Ruth. And here she is called the Moabitess. Ruth, the girl from another city. Ruth, the, the, the girl from a bad town that no one wants to have anything to do with her. Ruth, the, uh, or some, as I mentioned last week, uh, someone mentioned, said it, uh, she was as out of, of her place in, in Bethlehem uh, and I, as a, a bacon roll would be in a bar mitzvah. She did not belong there. And, and people in that town, they knew that. So everyone knew, look, look there's a foreigner. She's, she's, she's a stranger. And that is one of the themes recurring here, that God's grace reaches to the strangers, to the Gentiles. So here's Ruth, introduced to us again in chapter 2. She wakes up in the morning, or she comes to Naomi, and she says, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And as we come to this part, let me just pause and remind you, this is a, a true story, kind of like what I said this morning. We need to remind ourselves of the humanness, of the humanity of what we are reading. This is not just a, a fictional story of someone uh, that someone conjured up. These are real people, and they really went through this, and they really suffered through this uh, 
through this ordeal. Real men and real women in real places, places that we know of even to this day. Bethlehem is still there where it was in those days. It is slightly bigger now, but Bethlehem is still there. And the events that we see in this book will, will unfold into, into other events. Later on, uh, one of uh, Ruth's great-grandchildren named David, the king, he will shepherd his flock on the, in these fields. He will bring his flock to, to graze on the fields, maybe perhaps even the field that once belonged to Boaz. There will be David uh, taking his sheep through it. The same fields around the same area where the, the, the shepherds were on that great Christmas day when our Lord came to the earth. It was in the fields around Bethlehem. One wonders, was it the field of Boaz that they were in? Did God order things in that way? We are not told and we are not called to speculate or to them too much on that and to, to conjecture. But it, it is important for us to realize that there is story here that is real a real story it is a story of a woman that was bereft of a husband that her circumstances were terrible and i'm speaking of ruth here naomi's as well but i'm speaking of ruth she was bereft of her husband she was taken to a to a, a foreign nation she was taken to a place that wasn't hers she had nothing to look forward to she was broken and broke. She, had, she was an alien in a foreign land. But she knew that she had committed herself to Naomi. And she entrusted herself to the providential care of, God, of Naomi's God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that's who she trusted. And that's why she was there. She comes, I believe this must have been early on, maybe the second day that they were there, the first day we read in chapter one, and this is in the second day, because they came with not, great, with not much wealth or any wealth, they came back empty. So the next day, there is one major concern in, in, in Naomi's, uh, in this case in Ruth's mind, is what are we going to eat? As she woke up in her bed in that morning in a foreign land, she must have thought about this. Well, no point in being in bed. I better get up and start doing something. And she comes. A mark of respect. She comes to, to Naomi. She says, let me. Let me go out into the field and glean for and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. She's looking for favor. She's looking for grace. They've hit rock bottom. And I know some of us, we know what it means to hit rock bottom. If not financially, maybe emotionally. You know what it means to hit, hit rock bottom is when there is nothing else. You know there is nothing else. You've scraped the, 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 the bottom of the, of the barrel. You've turned it around. You've shaken it some more and it's empty. You're sure of that. And, and now you're still left with, with the knees and you don't know what to do. That's hitting rock bottom. And that's where, how they were. Nothing. 
in their lives. They, they went from a state of fullness to a state of emptiness. They're back in Bethlehem, but there is nothing. They are hungry. They have no food. They have no money. There is nothing there for them. And what does she do? She takes action. Common sense. Sometimes we Christians, we, we don't like the word, we don't like this, this kind of taking action. We, we, we like to romanticize the, we'll wait upon the Lord. But part of waiting upon the Lord is acting as well. Is praying and seeking those things that are of common sense. And Ruth displays this common sense. She reasons, probably in her bed in the morning as she wake up, wakes up, she reasons, well, no point in, in, in being uh, all downcast here. I'll get up. And I'll do something. I don't have a husband. I don't have a father-in-law. I don't have any children. I need to get, to get on with doing something. And she goes to Naomi. And she asks for permission. She asks, and this is, there's something of faith here. She is saying, I didn't move all the way from Moab to Bethlehem to die of hunger here. Uh, I didn't move all the way from Moab uh, to Bethlehem and give my life to the Lord for the Lord to let me down. I know the God to whom I have commended myself and committed myself on that day when we were coming to Bethlehem. And I know he will not let me down, so I'll go out and I'll find favor. Or I'll wait to, to find favor in someone's eyes. That is something of a, of a step of faith. I'm going to go out there and God is going to put someone. God is going to providential undertake for me. And he's going to give me the, the thing that I need. And there's a mark of respect. As I mentioned, she asks of Naomi. She asks of Naomi if she can go and glean on the fields. What is this gleaning? And let me just, uh, an aside, what, what is this thing of gleaning on the fields? In the fields. It is not a, a very respectable work. Let me tell you that. Gleaning on, on, in the fields was kind of a, the Old Testament uh, welfare system. Social security system. It worked in a way that when people didn't have anything. The God, God would say to the owners of the fields. Well the fields you have are mine. And I therefore tell you that when you're, you're reaping your, 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 your harvest, you are to del deliberately leave something behind for those who, who don't have them, who don't have access to food. It's, it's social welfare at work in, 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 in a great way. It's not handouts. It's not, oh, well, re uh, gather everything. But then save 10% and give it to the state. Let's not get into politics here. But, but it, what is, is leave some work for the less fortunate in society to be able to do for their own good. And that's what is happening here. For the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien, the oppressed, the immigrant, the needy, anyone can work in the fields that don't belong to them, in the outer edges, the things that fall to the ground. It was a wonderful thing. That was introduced, but it wasn't a very respectful thing to do. In our day, that was probably, it would probably be like if, if someone came to London and they were uh, completely broke, they didn't have anything homeless they need. It would be like collecting recycling uh, from, from dumpsters and from the streets, collecting aluminium cans just to scrape a few pounds together to buy some food. It is not a respectable job. But in, even so, Naomi uh, Ruth that says, we'll do it. We've hit rock bottom. 
Yes, but we can do something. And in faith she goes. She was willing to work. She was willing to do anything. She was venturing out in faith, knowing, hoping, trusting, praying that the Lord would give her what she needed. Knowing that God will supply her needs. Even before Paul said it, Ruth here kind of in her own actions illustrates the point that Paul says to the Philippians. My God will supply your every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And here is Ruth living that out even before Paul said it. Isn't it interesting as well? I hope you find it interesting that Ruth doesn't ask her mother-in-law uh, have you got, have something else planned for me? We're often younger people, and I, I'm particularly including myself in, in, in the younger people category. We, we tend to, to go, oh, I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll ask the older people what I should do. I'll let them decide. She doesn't come uh, down from, well, I don't know if, if she had a room upstairs, but she doesn't come uh, to breakfast and, and go, okay, Naomi, we're here. What are we doing? She doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. She doesn't, she doesn't go, well, I'm waiting for you to tell me what to do. This was your idea to come back to Bethlehem. How are, we, are you going to provide for me? What am I supposed to do now? She doesn't say that, does she? She, she doesn't even ask Naomi to come with her. That's surprising as well. She might have said, look, Naomi, you come and join me. Let's go, both of us. Yeah. Two, uh, four hands are better than two, right? Come on, I know you're bitter, I know you're all sad there, but let's, let's get on with it. No. She understood that the commitment, the covenant that she had made with Ruth, meant that she would be caring for her. And you might say, wow, that's a stretch of, a, of an application, Pastor. Listen to the words of an old Scottish commentator commenting on this passage if you think I'm stretching the, the, the application of, of this passage he says this young persons should be cheerfully willing to bear fatigues and troubles for the sake of their aging parents young woman a young woman cheerfully laboring for her aged parents is far happier than a fashionable lady spending in idleness and dissipation the fruits of the industry of her ancestor this is practical, and there is practical instruction here. We are told that Ruth acted in faith, that she was a woman of faith. Let's go to verse 3. Naomi said, go, my daughter. We don't know in what tone of voice she said this. Was it? A kind of despondent, go, my daughter. Go, my daughter. Was it? Yes, go, my daughter. I don't know. But one might wonder what kind of sentiment was going through Naomi's heart at this point where she didn't see any way out of her situation, where she was a bitter woman that thought that God's hand was against her. But verse 3, Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, I was reading this in the, in the AV, this translation here is the AV just, just now, and it hap, uh, uh, she happened to, to come into the, to a light in this field. There is a sense here what, what is being said. She happened to come a, to a part of a field that belonged to Bo Boaz, 
Nowhere, uh, nowhere else in the Old Testament is so clearly seen this, this language. She happened, she happened to come to a field. She happened to go. She happened to move from Moab to Bethlehem. She happened to, to move from, to, to, to be in Bethlehem without any food. She happened to go into a field. It, she happened that the field was the field that belonged to Boaz. She happened to pick that field by chance. She happened to, to, to pick the field that belonged to this rich, respectable, single man who was actually, as chance would have it, a family member of Elimelech, his father-in-law, his deceased, her deceased father-in-law. Chance, all chance. It's an ironic way that the Bible has to call attention to us. It is not a happenstance or an accident. It is not fortune or chance or luck that these things happen. This is, again, as we looked at the beginning, the providence of God, ordering things about. And that is the theme of the book. As you consider the book, you see an, un, an invisible hand through the book of Ruth, ordering things that... To an onlooker, humanly speaking, look chance like chance, and and and, and but it, uh, they are actually the invisible hand of providence. Literally, the the translation of what of what uh, verse three is trying to say it, it it's it says that it, it was she chanced to come to to this field, she she just so happens to have come here. It's just, it's just circumstance, a decision that was made. She didn't have any kind of light shown in her life. She just went into the, into the, into the fields outside of Bethlehem, saw some nice fields, went to the, to the first road, saw some people working in this field, and she says, well, I'll go here. And she went, common sense. She said, I need to go somewhere. This seems like a good, as good as, of a field as any other. And she goes there. No... Angel from the sky, no burning bush, no, no, no thunder, uh, uh, lightning coming through the sky and, uh, and, a, and a rainbow, nothing. She just made a, cha uh, a chance call and it just so happened to be this field. As luck would have it, you could translate it like that. I, I wrote here in the, the, how the AV puts it. Um, she, it says, her hap was to light on the field, on the field that belonged to, to Boaz. As luck would have it, if you want to translate it in a, in a more uh, modern language. As luck would have it. There she is. As it turned out, there she is. And by the way, you don't need to be unsettled by the pastor saying this. This is not heresy. This is how life works for all of us in our day-to-day -day lives. We make decisions. We pray through things. But most of the time, we make decisions that seem random, by chance. You're studying. You need to move from uh, to college or to university. There's these three universities. You look at the three of them. Any of them suit your, your prerequisites. And you just happen to choose one. And it just so happens that you, uh, by choosing that one, things start falling in place. 
And le- next thing you know, you're actually in the church, in your knees, crying out to the Lord for forgiveness. And all those small things were, are what Charles Spurgeon used to call prevenient grace. The graces that God uses to bring you to that place in time where, where this thing happens to you. Happenstance from a human perspective, from a humanly speaking perspective, but totally under control of the almighty hand of God. We see this throughout the Bible. We see this in our lives, that even our accidents, such as we would view them from our perspective, are under God's care. The misery, someone says, uh, or happiness of our lives is often derived from accidents that appear quite trivial. But you see, God has the whole world in his hands and nothing in the whole world is outside of his sovereign control. He's working every out, everything out according to the good purpose of his will. For from him and, and through him are all things made and are all things Abraham Kuyper, I don't know if you heard the name, he was uh, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands uh, in the early, early 20th century. And you go, is, is he going to quote a politician? Yes, but he was more than just a politician. He was a brother and he was a, someone who was a, a, quite a remarkable theologian. So let me quote him. He was the Prime Minister of Holland, but he was also a, a great Christian. And in his inaugural address, one of, the th- one of his marks or one of his uh, points in his CV was that he was the founder of the Free University of Amsterdam that he, that he, that he founded in 1880. So just about at the same time that this church was, was starting out, so just for a little bit of, of context or time frames. And in his inaugural address, he says this. There is not an inch in the whole area of human existence of which Christ, the sovereign of all, does not cry, it is mine. Let me read that to you again. There is, one, there is not one inch in the whole area of human existence which Christ, the sovereign of all, does not cry, it is mine. There is not an, a rebellious atom a rebel, uh, uh, a disobedient molecule in this universe that is un- not under the control of God. Do you believe that? Do you know this? Charles Simeon, that wonderful, great preacher, he said to his congregation, what is before us, we know not. Whether we shall live or die, but this we know, that all things are ordered and sure. Everything is ordered with unerring wisdom and unbounded love by thee, our God, who art love. Grant us in all things to see thy hand through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, let me read that to you once more. What is before us we do not know, whether we shall live or die. But this we know, that all things are ordered and sure. Everything is ordered with unerring wisdom and unbounded love by thee, our God, who art love, and grant us in all things to see your hand. Ruth did not just happen to come in the light upon the field that belonged to Boaz. She did not just happen 
to, to get there. And it wasn't just happening that, that Boaz thought her to be beautiful. And it wasn't just uh, an accident that Boaz wanted to marry her later and that they had a child. It wasn't just happening or chance or luck that, they were, that she was the great-grandmother and Boaz the great-grandfather of King David. It wasn't just chance that out of King David there was one that would come that is the Savior of all mankind, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is not just chance. God is ordering everything, every minute detail, every ordinary thing in our lives to, for the purpose and the glory of his name. For the purpose of the glory of his name. It wasn't just chance. Her steps were guided by the Lord. Even though she thought that she was guiding herself by her common sense, her reason, God was there in control. And to finish, I said I would come back to verse 1. and Let me just come back to verse 1 and look at Boaz. Again, it's not just chance. What was Ruth looking for in verse 1 and 2 and 3? What, what is Ruth looking for? Was it a meal that she was looking for on that night, on that day, or on that evening, or on that morning? Was it a meal, food that she was looking for? She, was just, she wasn't just trying to look for a meal. She thought she was. You can say it like that. But God was going to introduce her to something that she was seeking and she didn't even know that she needed. And, and, she was, and God was going to introduce her to this man who would become the head of her household. Although Ruth does not know it right now, Boaz is the real object of what she was searching for. And notice some of the points that, it, that are taught here about Boaz. He was a, a man... A kinsman, he was a, a, a relative of Elimelech. It was just what Ruth needed. She needed to find someone who was, in, this, in that sense, in her family. Although she did not know it. Boaz, we will find out, was able to perform this function of being a goel. A kinsman redeemer, of being the person who would redeem Elimelech's family. What is it that you need? Is it not Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who made himself like man so he could be our Redeemer? You might not know it, but that's what you're looking for. Or that's at least what you really need. He was a man of wealth, as our translation puts it. He was a man of wealth. Boaz possessed all the necessary things that Ruth needed. If Ruth had come across a poor man, that would be no good for her, would it? She's already poor. She needs someone who can provide for her. And again, is this not a picture of our Lord Jesus? He who was rich beyond all splendor, splendor giving us his riches to us who were poor. He who was perfect, and upright, he who had no sin of his own, who had perfect righteousness to give us his righteousness, he who knew no sin, becoming sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Is that not a picture of what we need? 
He, Christ, who was rich and completed God's plan to come and satisfy God's justice. Because, yes, salvation is free. It is of grace. But it came at a cost, the cost of our Lord Jesus' blood on that tree. He was a respected man. Number three. We're not... We are told that this, uh, as I told you, this word that means a man of great wealth can also denote military power, can also denote being a man of stature and a man of, of, um, of, of great respect. Isn't that a picture of our Lord Jesus, whom the Father has given a name that is exalted above every name? Yes, men mock him now and today. And his name is blasphemed often in this world. But his name is exalted. His name is exalted not because man exalts him. His name is exalted because the Father has exalted him. And there will come a day where every tongue will confess and every knee will bow in his presence. And that's the Lord, the Savior, the Redeemer that we need. You see, we, like Ruth, we are in this search we are in this seeking position. Some of us have found it. Some of us have, be, have enjoyed of the fullness that is the Lord's. Some of us have moved from the emptiness of Moab and being empty in, without bread in the house of bread to having received the fullness of God. But I wonder if that is you. Or if you are still in Moab, or if you are in the house of bread the, in Bethlehem without having really partaken and received of a fullness that the great descendant of Boaz and Ruth is able to give you. Some of us, as well, if you're in that situation, I'll tell you, come to Christ. He's able to give you that fullness. He's able to give you rest. But some of us, we might have already been made partakers, but we've lapsed. We've, we've developed this sense of, 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 uh, of despondency with the things of God. Can we honestly say that we are being fed and that we are growing? 2 Peter 3.18 speaks of, uh, of our need to grow. 17 says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is this something that you can say of yourself? That you're growing, that you're trusting, that you're resting on Him. I pray that you would be able to say this, because ultimately, Brothers and sisters, he is in control. He has promised that those who are hungry, he will never turn away hungry from him. Those that come for him to him for bread, he will feed them. He will no wise cast you out. It is available of the Lord. And that is for unbelievers and for believers alike. Are you hungry? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because they will be satisfied. And let us trust the Lord. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, this passage is meant to reinforce, to instruct us that the Lord is in control of all things. That yes, sometimes our life may look 
like a tangled mess of different threads that we cannot untangle, that they seem completely discoordinated. There is nothing there to be seen, but we know, don't we? We know for, by the test, for, with the testimony of Scripture, with the, with the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, that these things, all these things, work together for the good of those that are in love Christ Jesus. That behind the frowning providence, God hides a smiling providence, or a smiling face. That, that it is indeed an entangled mess from our perspective, but from God's perspective, He is bringing about something that is glorious and beautiful. And that all things are good when he does them. That there is not an inch, a speck of dust and of evil and wickedness in him. Let us never doubt that. Even when we are scraping the bottom of the barrel. It's very easy to confess these things, isn't it? When things are going well. I think Christians, we, we, we tend to lose track of this. It is very easy to confess the sovereignty of God and, and the goodness of God when things are seemingly going well in our lives. But brothers, we are called to trust and to say the same thing, even when things are going very, very wrong, or seemingly very, very wrong.